Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to the pastor's Bible class at St. Paul's Lutheran Church of De Pere. We are in the second week of a six-week series in which we are attempting to cover the six chief parts of Luther's small catechism, a class titled, What We Believe. And so we're going to be touching briefly on all the basics. Last week we talked about the Ten Commandments and sin. Today we're going to be talking about the Apostles' Creed. We're going to be studying it in depth, creeds in general. Um, there's so much to cover. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God and Father, we come before your throne of mercy this morning, seeking the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would open our eyes, our hearts, our minds, that we might understand your word and that we might believe your word. We, we pray that those who are new to the faith might come to a deeper understanding, that those who have been members of this congregation for a, a long time might be refreshed and renewed in what they believe. We pray most of all that, that the faith of each of us might be strengthened and that you might receive all praise and glory. We pray these and all things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. And so today we cover the creed. The word creed comes from a Latin word, credo, which means I believe. A creed is a statement of what we believe, what we teach, what we confess. There are creeds in the Bible. For example, in Matthew 16, we read the story of of a time when Jesus was walking with his disciples and he asked them, what are people saying about me? And then he got to the really important question, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter spoke up for all the disciples and confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There's a statement of what Simon Peter believed. Another passage is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. St. Paul is talking about the resurrection. We'll get into this chapter a little more later on. But he says, there is a body of materials. I, I received it and I have passed it on to you. Paul was the pastor of this congregation. He wanted to make sure that his people knew the basics of the faith. And so he passed it on to them just as he had received it. Why does the church need creeds? A creed is a summary of, of what the church teaches. It's important for evangelism, for example. If someone would come to you and say, you call yourself a Christian. What is it that you as a Christian stand for? What do you believe? And you could simply summarize it by saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, my Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And, and in a brief way, you could teach someone the very basics of the Christian faith. So it's a summary of what we believe. Creeds are also useful in combating error. If someone would come to you teaching something that you're not sure whether it's true or not, for example, suppose they say that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Well, how would you know? Where could you go for a simple summary to discover whether that's true or false? It, you simply go to the creed. And there the creeds all teach. This is what God says. The Lord Jesus rose again on the third day. And so we believe it and we understand that this person is teaching error. 
The third way in which a creed can be used is the way in which we use it during all of our worship services. As a confession of faith, we as a congregation are invited to stand. And I want you to think about what's going on when we confess the creed during worship. This is a time when 300 people rise together and boldly confess. I believe in God the Father Almighty. We are standing with Christians throughout the world, people who are literally dying for this faith. And so I urge you during those times of confession in the church that you stand and maybe even clench your fists, raise your head and confess, I believe. What an encouragement to those who are standing next to you. If they're having a bad day, if their faith is being tested, and now they're surrounded by a body of believers who are saying together, yes, this is what we believe. There are three ecumenical, three creeds that are accepted by 90% of all the Christians in the world. And you may be familiar with some, but not all. The first one is the Apostles' Creed. It dates back to about 190 A.D. to the church in Rome. And as the church began to spread throughout the world, there were little pockets of Christians everywhere, and they all needed a little statement of what they believed and what they taught to people who were coming into the church. And by 190, there was a creed very similar to our Apostles' Creed already found in the church at Rome. It's called the Apostles' Creed, not because it's found in Scripture. It's not. But it's based on the faith of the apostles, and it's been recognized throughout Christianity. A second creed is the Nicene Creed, dating back originally to around 325. There was a, a, a man who called himself a Christian. His name was Arius. Arius believed in Jesus, but he believed that Jesus was somehow a lesser god that God the Father had created all things. He created the Son, and while Jesus was God, he's more than human. He wasn't equal with the Father in every respect. And so the church throughout the world gathered in the city of Nicaea to, to try to understand, is that what Scripture really teaches about Jesus? And if you've ever paid attention to the, the Nicene Creed, you realize that it goes to great lengths to explain who Jesus is. It says, he is very God of very God, begotten, not made, true God with the Father. To emphasize for us, Arius was wrong. Here is where the Orthodox Church stands. We believe that Jesus is equal with the Father in every respect. The third creed is called the Athanasian Creed. It dates back to about 500. Athanasia was a, a defender of the faith at the Council of Nicaea. And so this creed was developed to, to honor the faith of Athanasius, but also to go to great lengths to, to talk about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity that God is three and yet one. It becomes very laborious. We only use it one time a year on Trinity Sundays. And, and as a pastor, I've always stood in front and, and listened to people groan as we say, we're going to confess the, night, the Athanasian Creed because it's so long, so monotonous. But it lays out in great detail. Here is the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. This is what we believe about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in our 
our study today, we're going to be looking at the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is often connected with baptism. It is um, the one that has the basics. There's one article for God the Father and his work of creation. A second article deals with God the Son and his work of redemption. And the third article, which deals with the Holy Spirit and the work known as sanctification. And we'll explain those terms as we go on. But there is one article for each person of the Holy Trinity. Trinity comes from two Latin words, tri, which means three, and un, which means one. We believe that God is three in one. And how can that possibly be? There are passages of the Bible that teach God's oneness. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, there is an old Jewish creed. It is recorded in Scripture. It's called the Shema. And it begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. So Jewish people from the very beginning believe that there is only one God. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8, St. Paul writes to the people in his congregation that he dearly loved, There is no God but one. And so Scripture clearly says, one God. And at the same time, Scripture teaches God's threeness. For example, at the baptism of Jesus, we, we read that as Jesus was coming up out of the water after being baptized, the heavens opened and there was this voice from God the Father who said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form as a dove that came to rest on Jesus. Three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the same way, as Jesus left this earth, he gave his disciples the Great Commission, telling them what they were to do, their marching orders from that point on. And they were to go and proclaim the gospel to teach all nations and to baptize them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one. How can this possibly be? It's impossible to explain it. The best we can do is through analogies. Oftentimes a symbol for the Holy Trinity is a triangle. You may have seen it in the church. An equilateral triangle in which all the sides and all the angles are equal. If you make one side longer than the other, you no longer have the perfect triangle. All are equal, all are necessary, three sides, one triangle. In the same way, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet not three gods, only one God. Another analogy, and all of the, the analogies break down. But imagine the compound H2O. You're all familiar with H2O. But it comes to us as a solid a liquid and a gas. The solid we call ice, the liquid we call water, the gas we call steam. Are there three H2Os or one H2O? Three in one. Or we think of a, a, oftentimes we teach children using an apple. An apple has a core and it has the flesh and it has the peel. Is that three apples or is that one apple? It's three in one. 
We could spend the rest of our lifetimes trying to explain the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Someone has said it's like trying to put a rainbow into a matchbox. You just can't do it. But scripture clearly teaches God's threeness and God's oneness. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We begin then our study of the Apostles' Creed by looking at the first article. And I've got it printed there for you. We confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean, Luther explains. I believe that God made me and all creatures that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does only out of fatherly, divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this, it is my duty to thank and praise and serve and obey him. And then Luther concluded, this is most certainly true. Notice in the creed we confess, I, not we, I believe. It's something that I am speaking on my own behalf. Nobody else can speak it for me. I believe. What does it mean to believe in God? Belief has something to do with knowing and accepting as true what the Bible says about God. And that's part of the purpose of this class, to, to say, look at the word. What does it say? I know and I accept as true what the Bible says about God. But James tells us that even the demons believe and tremble. They find no comfort. They know that every word of Scripture is the truth. They know more about God than you and I do. They know how to use the Scriptures better than you and I do. And so there's got to be more than just knowing and accepting as true. It has to do with relying on him, trusting in him with a firm confidence. I suppose, suppose you had a neighbor, a really athletic kind of guy. He's in his backyard all the time working out. You see him jogging everywhere. This guy is, is buff. And so he comes to you one day and he says, I've got a new goal. I'm going to st stretch a tightrope from one side of the Grand Canyon to the other. Do you believe I can walk that rope? And you've watched this guy for a while, and he's pretty athletic, and you say, yeah, I, I know, I accept as true, you can, you can walk that tightrope. So you watch him in the backyard, and he's working out, and he's got this, this thing stretched across his backyard, and he's pretty good. One day he comes to you and he says, I'm going to make it more challenging. I'm going to push a wheelbarrow across that tight wire across the Grand Canyon. Do you believe that I can do that? You think about it for a little while and say, yeah, I believe you can do that. I know, I accept it's true. You can push that wheelbarrow across that tight wire. Then he looks at you and says, okay, now get in the, the wheelbarrow. 
Okay, now your life depends upon whether or not he can actually do what he says he's going to do. That's what it means to believe in God. I know what the scripture says. I accept as true what the Bible says about God. But now I rely on him. I trust in him. He's going to accomplish everything for me that he has promised to do. It's true. We confess, I believe in God. God the Father. He's the Father of all since he created all things. He's my Father in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3 says, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And so, Father... Not all of us have had good earthly fathers, but here is the perfect father who loves us dearly, who will provide us with all that we need, who protects us from all danger. I believe in God the Father Almighty, and it's only safe to say Almighty after you've said he's the Father. Because if you were changing this around and you said, I believe in God Almighty, how would you know how he was going to use that power? He could use that power to make your life miserable. But after you've called him Father, you know he's going to use that almighty power to protect and provide you with all that you need. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. We believe that God made all things from nothing. He merely spoke a word of command, let there be, and there was. He made order in all of this. He built into it reproduction so that his creation would continue on and on for generations and generations to come. He put into it laws of physics and science. God had a plan. For this wonderful creation which he had made. Now obviously that goes against many popular theories today of how creation, how the world came into existence. But we take God at his word. In Genesis 1 and 2, the one who was there, the one who actually existed and created said, let there be. And there was. We believe that he is God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. But notice Luther made it more personal. He began by saying, I believe that God made me. As the crown of his creation, God made Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. They were the, the crown they were made in God's image. They were like God. They were perfect. They were holy. They were without sin. They were able to communicate with God whenever he came into the garden looking for them. And they were perfectly happy in this original state in which God created them. They were to be the caretakers. From the very beginning, man and woman were meant to be environmentalists, conservationists to take care of this creation. That's why God put us here. And I'm one of those human beings that God made. And he made me different than he made you. I have a different DNA. I have different fingerprints. I am like you in many ways, but I am different. God created me.
because he loves me. Luther went on to say he preserves me. He didn't simply create this world, but he, he keeps it going. The deists, those founding fathers of our country, believed that God was like a divine clockmaker. He made the world, he wound the spring, and he sent us off into space and let the spring unwind, and the laws of nature happen as however they might. That's not what Luther believes. That's not what we believe. We believe that God is intimately involved in our lives each and every day. He preserves us. He provides us with all that we need each and every day. Go back to that explanation and look at that long list of things that God provides. He gives me clothing and shoes and food and drink and house and home and wife and children and lands and animal. He gave me my body. He gave me my reason. He gave me all my senses. He's given me everything. He provides all that I need. And he defends me from all danger. And here it's talking about physical disasters. One of the important questions is, if God is taking care of us, why do bad things happen to us? Why is there suffering in this world? Does God have a plan to be working in the midst of all of this? You see, we, we live in a fallen world, and we'll talk about this in weeks to come, but we live in a world infected by sin, and because of that sin, there is all the evil, all the heartache, all the pain, all the sorrow. But God works in the midst of all of that. There's one whole book of the Bible, the book of Job, that's dedicated to seeking to understand why bad things happen to a good man named Job. And in the end, God questions Job and says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And Job has to confess things were happening that I didn't understand. I knew about you, God, but now through this suffering, I have come to see you face to face. I know you like I've never known you before. Through all that he endured, God was protecting him and God was drawing Job closer to himself. St. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He talks about it in, in 2 Corinthians 7. We don't know what this thorn in the flesh was. Some say that Paul had epilepsy. Some say that he had malaria. Some say that he was nearly blind. One theory I read says Paul was ugly. Just a plain ugly man. And that ugliness got in the way sometimes of, of his preaching. People could hardly stand to look at him. Whatever it was, he prayed over and over again that God would take it away. And in the end, God taught him, Paul, you can't depend on yourself anymore. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And that was the greatest discovery of all. So in the midst of all of this suffering, God was drawing him closer. In Romans chapter 8, it says that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And that there is nothing in all creation, height, depth, angels, authorities, principality, there is nothing in all creation that will ever happen to us that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Savior. God protects us from all of the physical disasters. But God also guards and protects me from all evil, the spiritual disasters. 
What happens when temptations come? And we all know what it is to be tempted. Pastor Thomas talked about it this morning. There's the internet. There's all of the things going on in the world around us that is constantly trying to draw us away from God. But God guards and protects us. He keeps us steadfast in faith. He gives us the power that we need to overcome those temptations and continue to live our lives for him. Now the question is why? Why would God do all of this for you and me? And Luther summarized it by saying, purely out of fatherly, divine goodness and mercy without any merit in me. It's not because I'm such a good guy that God owes all of this to me. God does it simply because he loves me. No other reason. He loves me. And so what's our response? How can you respond to a God who just keeps dumping all this good stuff on you, blessing you time and time every day of your life? How do you respond? Luther said, it's my duty to thank and praise and serve and obey him. It's now my duty as a Christian to, to stop. And I like to turn those around and, and say, serve, thank, obey, and praise. It's my duty to live a life of joy and thanksgiving to this God who has done all this for me. And then Luther concludes by saying, this is most certainly true. Because it's all based on scripture. So we've tried to demonstrate with all the Bible passages that we put in here. It's not something that the church has made up on its own. This is clearly something which all of Scripture directs us to believe. Well, that's a summary of the first article of the Creed. We don't have a great deal of time, but are there any questions? We could spend months. You know, I, I work at Concordia Seminary. Talk about creation. There's entire semester classes spent on creation. Um, I don't see any, but um, you want to explore? We can explore some of this stuff in greater detail in, in days to come. Let's turn to the second article of the Creed. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Luther explains, what does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person. Purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil. Not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. That I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom. And serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence and blessedness. Just as he has risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. The article deals with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his work of redemption. Redemption comes from, from words which talk about paying the ransom, 
Paying a price that sets a prisoner free. In olden times, people could be sold into slavery, and if they raised enough money, they could buy their own freedom back. But what would it cost to buy us back from our, our slavery to sin and death and the devil? There isn't enough money. So how are we redeemed? It's not silver or gold, St. Peter said, but it's the holy, precious blood of Jesus. He suffered and died in our place. He paid the price that sets us free. This history, this, this story of salvation is taught from the very beginning in Scripture. From the days when Adam and Eve first fell into sin, God promised that there was going to be enmity between the woman and the serpent, between a descendant of the woman and the devil, that the devil would get in a good bite. He would inject his poison. He would kill the son. But in the end, the sun would crush the serpent's head. That's pretty vague. But already in the very beginning, God was promising that he had a solution to this problem of sin. That there was a descendant of the woman, a true man, who was going to crush the serpent. Destroy the devil's power. As time went on, God chose one family, Abraham. And said, Abraham, I am going to bless you so that you will become a blessing to all the nations. One of your descendants is going to be the savior of the whole world. He'll bring my blessings to all. And time went on. It became clearer and clearer. There was a time when King David wanted to build a house for God, a temple. And God said, no, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. A dynasty, a lineage. And through you, I'm going to rescue the world. And so royalty entered into this genealogy of Jesus. Through the prophets, God continued to define and refine what he had planned to do. We get passages like Isaiah 7, where God promised that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. How does that possible? But 700 years before Christ, it was all laid out. This child was going to be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. Luke, of course, is the famous Christmas story. And if you read that, that, um, pas that passage of Scripture clearly, the wonderful story of how Jesus came into this world through the Virgin Mary, you see that all of those Old Testament prophets... Everything they said is true. It all happened just exactly as God said it would for thousands of years. What is God's will? It's, it's his will that this word now go out to all the world. And that's the great commission that I talked about a little while ago. It's for all people, not just a few. There are lots of terminologies that you hear in the church about this person of the Trinity. He's called Jesus. It's a, a name. It's a Greek name. It's Joshua in, in Hebrew. It means the Savior. When Mary called this little boy in for supper, she called him Yeshua. Come on in for supper. Christ is not a name, but it's really a title. It's more, more that we say Jesus the Christ because Christ is is a, a Greek word that means the anointed one. 
Messiah is the Hebrew word, means the same thing. In scripture, they anointed people literally pouring a flask of oil over a person's head, saying that this person had been set aside for service to God. They anointed prophets, God's spokesmen. They anointed priests who offered the sacrifice that, that God demanded of his people. They anointed kings and said, this man rules as God's representative in the world. Prophet, priest, and king were all anointed. As the story of, of salvation unfolds, it became clear that the people of Israel were waiting for this special anointed one, the Messiah who was to fulfill all the, the prophecies. We call him Lord, which means master. We are totally owned, operated, controlled. We are his. He is our Lord. John called him the word. In the, in the beginning of John's gospel, there's this long prologue, which says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it's clear to us who, who understand what he's talking about, that he's talking about Jesus, the word who became flesh, dwelt among us. Jesus often called himself the Son of Man. And that's not to say that Jesus only claimed to be human. In the book of Daniel, we read a prophecy of one coming on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And what Jesus is saying when he calls himself Son of Man is to say, I'm the one who fulfills the prophecy, the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel. Of course, we call him Emmanuel. The name means God with us. It's a, an image of incarnation. Incarnation means God becoming flesh. It is, he is God with us in human flesh. It was the name in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It's the name which the angel Gabriel told Joseph to call this boy. We believe that Jesus was true God. Begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man born of the Virgin Mary. True man, um, Scripture says, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, the man, Christ Jesus. Luke 24, 39, even after his resurrection, this Jesus had flesh, human flesh and bones, just like you and I do. He had wounds in that flesh that were still present after his his crucifixion. We read in the Gospels of how Jesus wept, how he hungered, he thirsted, he got tired, he, he um, was with his disciples in, in the boat at times, sleeping. Jesus suffered, Jesus died, Jesus didn't glow in the dark, they didn't recognize that there was anything different about this Jesus. He was a human being as much as you and I are. But Jesus is also true God. And this is the area where most people have problems. Muslims, Jews, nearly everyone will admit that there was a man named Jesus who was a great teacher, a leader of a large movement, a moral example. But they will not believe that Jesus is also God. Jesus claimed in John 10, verse 30 to 39, I and the Father are one. 
He certainly claimed to be equal with the Father. Matthew 9, Jesus claimed to have authority to forgive sins. When they asked him who can forgive sins but God alone, he showed them he had authority to forgive sins. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, an explanation of what the earliest Christians believed about this Jesus. They said, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representative of his being. They believed that he was God. Jesus had to be true God in order to be holy, to bring about our salvation. If he'd have been a sinner like all of us, he would have had to die for his own sin. But he lived a perfect life. He had to be true God in order that his death might be a sufficient payment for the sins of the world. Justice would say one person dies, or one person sins, one person dies. What does it take to balance the scales for all the sins of all the world? Except God sacrificed his own son. And that equaled the balance of justice in his mind. Jesus had to be true God in order to conquer death in the grave, in order to rise again on the third day. No human being has ever done that on his own. Had to be true God. But he also had to be true man. He had to be true man in order to take our place under the law, to fulfill the law of God perfectly. He had to be true man so that, that his death would be the death that we deserve. He became our substitute. He took our place. He balanced the scales for all human beings. He had to be true man. So we believe that Jesus was 100% man. And at the very same time, he was also 100% God. How can that be? Well, the way I figure it, it makes him at least 100% more than I am. In Jesus, the divine and human are joined together, not simply like two pieces of wood. You know, woodworkers often glue pieces of wood together side by side, and you can see where the seam is. But in this Jesus that we worship, you can't identify that it was only the human being Jesus that died and the divine Jesus, the God Jesus who rose from the dead. They are joined together in such a way that they are totally inseparable. Now the bottom line is this. Either Jesus is who he said he is. Either Jesus is the Son of God who came to sacrifice himself on a cross for you and rise again so that you might have eternal life, or this Jesus was a nutcase, a lunatic. And really, there is no, there is no ground between the two of them. Either he is or he isn't. Either he is God or he's not. Either he's Savior or he's not. That's what it comes down for us. Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Now the creed talks about our Savior's state of humiliation. And if you look at the creed, it's kind of the steps from riches to rags. It's the part of the creed that says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Philippians 2 is a beautiful passage that describes what this is like. 
Jesus made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Though he was equal with God, he made himself nothing and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. And so while Jesus was here on earth, he looked like everybody else. He didn't glow in the dark. Most of the painters that we've seen in old days always had a halo over Jesus. He didn't have a halo. If he wanted to move from one place to another, he just didn't pop in and pop out. He walked the same roads that everybody else did. He ate the same foods that everybody else did. He faced the same temptations. He was a human being in every respect who humbled himself. And so we, we confess that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. If you look at the Christmas story, you hear the annunciation to Joseph, first of all. God sent an angel to appear to him in a dream. Joseph was struggling. He knew he wasn't the father. He suspected that Mary, who was now pregnant, had been unfaithful to him. But God sent an angel and said, no, you take this child to be your own. You give him the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Joseph knew there was no earthly father here. Mary knew the same thing when Gabriel came to her. said, you're going to conceive and bear a son. She said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. That which is conceived in you is, is holy, the Son of God. It's critical that we understand the, the importance of conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Because if Jesus had been born in the, in the natural manner that you and I are, he would have had a human father, a human mother. He would have been infected by what Pastor Thomas, what we in the church call original sin. Remember, Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, and they passed this on from generation to generation. If Jesus had had a human father and mother, he would have had original sin. If he would have had original sin, he could only have died on a cross for his own sin. So the church teaches this, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary as a critical doctrine. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate is the only man mentioned in the creed. He gets the blame, but actually he handed him over to the Jews, and they were the ones who were responsible for crucifying Jesus. doesn't matter. The point is Jesus died on a cross for my sins and for yours. Suffered under Pontius Pilate puts it into a historical context. It really happened at a real time in history when Pontius Pilate was the ruler. He was crucified. Scripture doesn't go into any of the gory details of crucifixion, but it was the most inhumane way of dying that mankind has ever invented. Exposed, suffocating, dehydrated, pneumonia would set in, and all done publicly so that everyone would know this is what happens if you mess with the Romans. The physical part was not the worst. The worst part of it was he was forsaken by his Father in heaven. Imagine being suspended on a cross between heaven and earth. All mankind had rejected him. The Father rejected him as well. That's what had to happen for him to be the Savior. He died. 
When a soldier came to check whether or not Jesus was dead, he ran a spear into Jesus' side, and out of it came a flow of blood and water, indicating that the blood had already begun to fall apart. Jesus truly died. He was buried. He was hastily prepared, put into a tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, according to the Jewish burial customs. Everyone knew that Jesus had died. Why would he do that? Again, because you're so good. There's this passage in Romans 5. We don't have time to go into detail, but look it up sometime. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. It's not that we deserve this, but it's purely because he loves us. All of the Old Testament scriptures have come true. The second part of the creed talks about his state of exaltation. That according to his uh, exaltation consists in this, that according to his human nature, Christ always and fully uses the divine attributes communicated to his human nature. Philippians, that same passage that talked about how he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, also says that God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that this Jesus is Lord of all. And so the creed says he descended into hell. He arose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe that sometime between his crucifixion and his resurrection on Easter morning, Jesus descended into hell, not to suffer. This is, the suffering ended when Jesus on the cross said, it's finished. He went to hell not to give those folks a second chance. He went to hell in order to proclaim his victory. He had conquered sin. He had conquered death. He had conquered Satan. He was the victor of all. And so, Creed says, he descended into hell. He arose again on the third day, over and over again. This is the heart and soul of our salvation. Scripture talks about Easter morning and how the stone was rolled away and Jesus was no longer there. And the angels uh, spoke to the, the disciples and Mary who ran out to the tomb to see for themselves. Jesus rose again. It was the same Jesus that had died when he appeared to Thomas. Remember, he still bore the marks of the nails, the wound in his side. It was a physical Jesus. Flesh and bones. 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter, says that for 40 days, Jesus continued appearing to disciples. There were, there were at least nine times during those 40 days where he appeared to them. There was one time when there were more than 500 people around to witness. And Paul says, you can talk to any one of them because most of those folks are still alive. There was no question in anyone's mind that this Jesus had conquered death in the grave. It was, it was the same body, and yet it was a glorified body, no longer limited by time and space. He could appear in a room, disappear. It was Jesus. He 
This resurrection is vital to us as Christians. It convinces us that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that all his words to us are true, that God has accepted the sacrifice of his Son for the sins of the world, and that all believers will rise as well. Jesus promised that all who live and believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. His resurrection guarantees me and you that you will likewise rise from the dead. This Jesus ascended into heaven. He met with his disciples for 40 days, and then came a time when he was on the top of the Mount of Olives, and he suddenly began to rise. And they stood there with their mouths wide open, looking up, and a cloud came and hid, them from, hid him from their view. And an angel said, Why do you stand here looking up into heaven? This Jesus that you just saw go will come in the same way. But he gave you marching orders. He told you to go back to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit then to carry that good news out into the world. We believe that Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's where he went. Not that heaven is up above the clouds or out there in space. We don't know where heaven is. But Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father. And that, that's the position of power. That's the position of glory. That's where every knee bows, every tongue confesses that this Jesus is Lord. always amazing to me to, to realize that there is a great high priest. There is one who sits at the right hand of the Father who has been tempted the same way that I've been tempted, who understands my sorrows, my pains, my difficulties, and who is ruling over all things for the sake of his church. That's what the book of Ephesians says, rules over everything for his church. You know Murphy's Law? Murphy's Law says, if anything can go wrong, it will. This says that's a lie. Because Jesus rules over all things. If anything can go right for me as a Christian, it's going to happen. Because Jesus is ruling over everything for my sake. This Jesus will come again. In power and glory, he's going to judge the living and the dead. We don't know when that's going to happen. We'd love to know. But he keeps telling us to be prepared, to watch, to wait, to know that he's coming. And when he comes, he's going to judge. We think of judge as heavy-duty law. But Jesus said he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's, he's going to judge on the basis of whether or not we believed in him whether we've followed him. He's going to know immediately. There's not going to be any question. You're not going to stand there and say, Dear Jesus, this is what I've done. This, 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 and this, and so you ought to lead me into heaven. No, it's a matter of whether or not you have belonged to Jesus. That's the basis of the judgment. And what's our response once again? That I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting innocence and righteousness and blessedness. The only proper response to this Jesus who has done all this for us is that we, we commit our lives to him. We live our lives for him. 
we recognize that he is the Lord and Master. And again, this is most certainly true because it's taught in Scripture. Briefly, the third article. third article says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And what does this mean? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. On the last day, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. This third article deals with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, um, and the work of sanctification. Sanctification means to make holy. And that's basically the, the question behind all the religions of mankind. How do you make holy people out of unholy people like us? As Christians, we believe that the only way in which we're made holy is we're forgiven in the blood of Jesus. But how does what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago bring any benefit to me? How do I receive the blessings that Jesus accomplished on the cross? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He works in God's Word. He works in baptism. He works in the Lord's Supper to bring us to faith, to keep us in faith, he delivers to us the goods, forgiveness, and life, and salvation. He makes us holy. There's a, an old story. and it, imagine, that, imagine that you're out in the desert in Arizona. You're out on a hike in the middle of nowhere, and you fall into a deep pit. And when you come to your senses, you realize that on the other side of this pit, there's a rattlesnake who's coiled and ready to strike you. And like a wild man, you begin clawing, trying to get yourself out of this hole. But no matter what you do, there's no way you can possibly get yourself out. And so you begin to cry out for help. And along comes a Muslim. And he looks down into the hole and he says, Brother... You shouldn't have gotten yourself into this condition. The will of Allah is supreme. And if it's Allah's will that you should be bitten by that snake, and if it's Allah's will that you should die, you will die. And he walks away, leaving you down there in the hole with this rattlesnake. Along comes a Buddhist. And he says, brother, there are eight paths to nirvana. And if you will meditate Perhaps God will reveal to you a way in which you can crawl out of this hole. And he leaves you down in the hole with the rattlesnake. Along comes a, a Hindu. And he says to you, I see you've got a problem, but you've got to recognize the body isn't real, the rattlesnake isn't real, the hole isn't real. Nothing is real in this earth. But if that rattlesnake would bite you and you die, you'll be reincarnated. You'll come back either as a grasshopper or a frog if you've done wrong, and maybe to some sort of a higher being if you've done good. And he leaves you down there in the hole. Along comes a Confucian. 
who looks down into the hole and says, there is evidence which says man should not fall into a hole with a rattlesnake. There's evidence which says rattlesnake venom is poisonous. There's evidence that says if that rattlesnake bites you, you're going to die. There is evidence that says you shouldn't get into that place. And he leaves you down there in the hole. Then along comes Jesus. And he looks down into the hole and he says, my beloved, I'll save you. And he jumps down into the hole with you. And he picks you up in his arms and he lifts you out of the hole just as the rattlesnake bites. He takes the venom. He dies in your place in order to save you. That's the difference between Christianity and all the other religions of mankind. In every one of them it says you must do something in order to save yourself. But Christianity says Christ died for you. He has made you holy. And so this, this part of the creed deals with five things. The person and the work of the Holy Spirit. It talks about the church, which is the communion of saints. It talks about forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, life everlasting. The Holy Spirit, as we said, is the third person of the Holy Trinity. It's an interesting word. It often... We translate it today, spirit. It used to be translated ghost. In the Hebrew, the word is ruach. And it can be translated wind, spirit, breath. Um, in the New Testament, the word is pneumos. And it's the same way, wind, spirit, breath. When God breathed into Adam the breath of life, he became a living being. On the day of Pentecost, we hear that there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire became distributed. The Holy Spirit is this third person of the Trinity. This chief work of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to faith. Luther said, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. I cannot do it myself because... As we read in Romans before, I'm spiritually blind. I'm dead. I'm an enemy of God. How can I possibly save myself? There's nothing that I can do to believe in Jesus. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. Through this word that we keep hearing, the Spirit is working, saying, this Jesus died for you. Believe it. He's enlightened me with his gifts. Imagine turning on the lights. Scripture talks about once you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Think of the world around us, and darkness is a pretty good descriptor of the world that we live in. But the Holy Spirit has turned on the light so that you can recognize the truth, the truth about Jesus. He has sanctified me in true faith. He, he enables me to live for Jesus. He enables me to produce good works. A good work is everything that a child of God does, thinks, or says in accordance with the Ten Commandments. For the glory of God, for the good of his neighbor. And only we Christians can do good works. Because without faith in Jesus, we cannot please God. This spirit keeps us steadfast in faith. Um... Last week, Pastor talked about the unforgivable sin, the sin of unbelief. And remember he said that if you're worried about this, 
that maybe you've committed this unforgivable sin, he was pretty sure that you haven't? The reason he could say that is because he's confident that the Spirit will keep you in the Word. If you are where the Word of God is, if you are a baptized Christian, if you are receiving the Lord's Supper where the Holy Spirit has worked, God has promised he will keep you steadfast in this faith. Talk about the church. Don't have much time, but the church is the whole number of believers. All believers and only believers are members of one church. Ephesians talks about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of us all who is above all and through all and in all. Once the Holy Spirit brings us to faith, he always connects us with a body of believers. Believers, all believers, only believers are members of this one true church. We can talk about that at a later time, but this is the work of the Spirit. Um, God has richly blessed us through Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. And he's done it all simply because he loves us. We close today with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you in favor give you his peace. Amen. Thanks for your attention.